Now, in just a moment, we're going to do something that we have never done. And that is, I'm going to have you read a scripture. And at the end of it, we're going to say, this is the word of the Lord, but I'm not sure it is. And so I just want you to know, I'm, it's, a, it's a false setup. I want to warn you. I was going to tell you later, but you need to know up front. Okay? So let's, let's look at what the scripture says. And we're going to look at how it got there. When Moses saw that the people were running wild, for Aaron had let them run wild to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may be seated. See what, see what I'm saying? Does that sound like Jesus to you? Does that sound like love your neighbor as yourself? Does that sound like love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? Does this look like the core of the gospel, love God, love others? Is this the word of the Lord? Can we thank God for these words? Where you kill your brother, your friend, your neighbor to get a blessing upon yourself. Is that what we believe? No, it's not. But it's in there. Now, I hope the words that we just read together were unsettling to you. They're unsettling to me. And I hope you ask with me, how do I reconcile this text in the Bible with Jesus? Can you imagine God asking you to take a sword and kill your friends, your neighbors, your family members? Because somehow they had offended him. My name is Mark Foster, and I'm the founding senior pastor here at Acts 2. We take the Bible very seriously. All of it. All of it. And I pray that today, together, we will commit ourselves to making sense of our sacred text, of this holy word. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out, and we're going to dive into this. And it has some very real modern-day application, which we'll get to, of course. This is what we believe. I want you to say it with me. The word of God is Jesus Christ. And the words of the Bible tell us about that word. Therefore, when we study the words of the Bible, we always look behind, in, and through those words for God's word, Jesus Christ. This is the opening statement of Disciple Bible Study, which is the core study that our church has been a part of since 1999. Chantel and I uh, read these words the first time in 1993, before many of you all were alive. And, and we've been living our lives under this uh, since then, for some 26 years. Our, given our lives to this. That Jesus Christ is the Word of God. The Bible is very clear about that. And all the rest of the words of the Bible talk about that Word. So when we study the Bible, we have to look in and behind and through those words for God's true Word, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the unmitigated Word of God. When you see Jesus, you see God. And so when you come across things in the Bible that don't match the person of Jesus, we have some options. Uh, and 
with difficult scriptures, we have at least three. We've got more than that, but here are three that I see quite often. The first, and, and man, people can get really good at this, is you simply ignore it. <clears throat> right? You don't want to talk about it. It's hard. Um, on the scripture we're working with today, it took me a good three days and about 20 hours to get to the bottom of it. I spent my life doing this, and it took me a full three days and 20 hours to figure out what was going on with this text. Now, I realize most of you don't want to give that kind of time. I'll give it to you. But it's not okay just to ignore it. It's there. Because when we ignore hard and difficult things in our lives or in the text, there's hell to pay. Isn't that true? Over time, you simply ignore stuff long enough, it's going to bite you. And that's true with the text as well. Terrible things have been done in the name of God because people simply ignore the pieces they don't like. They take the pieces they do like, they make them fit together, and they just move on. It's true in all of our lives. This is a really big teaching that we need to pay attention to. Secondly, then, um, if we say, okay, we're not going to ignore it, then we simply blindly accept it. Right? Well, God says it. That must be it. We're, we're going to do it. But sometimes the things that we read that we say God says are in direct opposition of the other things God has said in the person of Jesus. And so if we simply accept these incongruent passages, it can lead to senseless murder, Holocaust. One well-meaning writer in my study this week wrote these words about the scripture we just read. The courage of the Levites give Israel a future. Now, you you play that out logically about what it would mean for me to be your warrior priest and for me to kill somewhat indiscriminately to bring a blessing upon myself for my ordination. That's not how we ordain in the Methodist church. Thanks be to God. Because of a certain view of Scripture, if you have to make it make sense as God's inerrant word at every turn, then we wind up taking God's clear command against murdering one's brother, and it, make it makes it an ultimate badge of faithfulness or in our nation. See that? Because you can't take the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not murder, and then, oh, by the way, go ahead and murder and bring a blessing on yourself. They don't match. So what do you do? It's easy to ignore it. we got stuff to do. We're busy people. It's easy to blindly accept it. Or to talk to people who can simply confirm our bias. We do that all the time in all kinds of places in our life. But it leaves us ignorant. Doesn't, does, I'm not saying we're not smart people. But it does leave us uninformed. And so uh, I was helped. This is, I, will, I, will, I will tell a true story on myself. Uh, this guy's hard to read. Uh, Reverend Childs. I read him in my Exodus class. And in my Biblical Studies class in 1993 and 94. And to be truthful... I had never picked it up since until this week. It's that hard. I don't enjoy it. It's not fun. But this is what he says. He says, up to this point in the story, no distinction had been made among the people. And so I hope you do have your Bibles with you today. And you can look at the story. Start back in chapter 28 where there's a different consecration process for the priests. And so he says, look at this. Look at the story in its whole. He goes... Everybody, see, this is a story where Moses has the Ten Commandments. He's up there talking to God. Aaron's talking to the people. The people are like, Moses is taking too long. We, we want to do something else. And so they take off all their jewelry. They, they throw it um, in this thing. And Aaron, you know, and Aaron makes this golden calf for them to worship. And then 
Moses comes down. He goes, what are you doing? And he goes, I don't know. They just took off their stuff. They threw it in there and out came a calf, right? But notice, right? Notice that in the story, there was no distinction between who was. It was unanimous. Everybody participated. Everybody threw in the stuff. Everybody worshiped the calf. And now somehow, miraculously, later in 32, 25 to 29, now there's a distinction, right? All the people had responded to Aaron's call for gold, and all of them had celebrated to worship the calf. And then you get this weird story on the backside that says, no, 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 not all of them. There were these warrior priests that did the right thing. Where's that come from? So child struggles, he struggles on. He goes, well, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make literary sense, much less theological sense. So he says, well, what's going on? And he comes across this really weird little story um, in 1 Kings 12, 25, where the wicked king, Jeroboam, of the northern kingdom of Israel, up here, okay, there's two, this is the divided kingdom after David. There's the northern kingdom of Israel. Everybody say Israel with me. And then right here is the dividing line. Nine miles south of the dividing line is Jerusalem, where the temple is, where people go to sacrifice. And there's another king down here in Judah. And these two kingdoms are actually at odds with each other. So Jeroboam sets up Shechem, right? And this is what he does. He knows that if his people up in Shechem go down to Jerusalem in the other kingdom, they're going to go away from him. But their law required them to go to Jerusalem to sacrifice. And Jeroboam can't abide by that because he knows his power will end. It's a geopolitical battle, friends. So then Jeroboam built Shechem on the hill country that I just showed you. He resided there. He goes from there. He built Penuel. Then Jeroboam says to himself, now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David, which is Judah, right? Judah, house of David. If this people continue to go up to offer their sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, right, they're going to travel there, the heart of this people will turn against to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. I know it's confusing. Jeroboam's in the north, Rehoboam's in the south. They could have picked better names. But he says, but if they do that, if they actually go down to Jerusalem, they're going to come back and kill me, and they're going to go back to Rehoboam. So the king took counsel, and what's he do? He makes not one calf of gold, two. And he says to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So he says, ah, I'm going to pull on this story. Because you remember that the law for the Jews at that time was Genesis, Exodus. This is law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So he's going to say, oh, okay, so I'm going to make two calves. They don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. You can do it right here. Because that represented God, while Moses was on the mountain, and you don't have to do it anymore. Is this making sense? So politically, he doesn't want them to go south. He wants them to stay. He makes two calves, and this is a thing. Now, it gets worse. Bulls, like these calves, they weren't just calves. They were actually in the shape of bulls. Bulls was the idol of Baal, the warring god of Yahweh. So you have this terribly wicked king that's blowing up all the liturgy, all the rituals. He's warring against the other kingdom. And Jeroboam's hope was to keep his people from going down there. So this is, catch this. So what we read this morning, it looks like Exodus 32, only verses 25 to 29. Completely different author than that whole story. It's inserted all the way back into the law code of Exodus as a polemic to discredit Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's policy. It didn't even exist in the story until nearly 800 years later. And it's simply inserted for their geopolitical reasons. To lift up the Levite priest and push down everybody who came out of the line of Aaron. 
discrediting everyone who's associated with Aaron. You know what we call this today? Politics. <laughs> right? Imagine if you had the power to write a story, even four lines brief, and put it back into the Constitution 200 years later. That would change things, wouldn't it? Because the law is an exodus. So it doesn't matter if you write it as a writer today. What matters is, is it in your law code? And so you take these four little... And the, and the thing is, so you read the scholars and they'll say, yeah, 25 to 29 doesn't fit any of the other literature around that story. It looks different. They use different words. It looks like it's from a different time. They didn't even use those words back in the 1300s. They only used them around the fall um, in 586. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'll give it to you. It took me three days to get there. And he said, well, what am I supposed to do? Read your footnotes. Really, that's why you need a study Bible. Because you read something, you say, that doesn't look like Jesus. Maybe it's not. Look at your footnotes and study. Because with difficult scriptures, we have three options. Ignore it, blindly accept it, or you can view it by the life and work of Jesus. Because he is the word of God. He's the word of God. And this is what the word of God says. Read it with me. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. No one is greater love than this, than to lay one's life for one's friends, which is why we keep the cross front and center. That's what the word of God says. And then he says this, of all Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it boils down to love God and love others, right? Last week we used a colander. He shakes it all down to love God, love others. That's what the word of God says. Jesus. And then when, when the priest and other folks in the geopolitical parties at the time were really upset that he was, you know, messing with their power, they said, no, no, no. They wanted to trap him. What is the greatest commandment? And he says, Jesus, the word of God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. They knew that. And he says this, the second is like it. Also comes from Leviticus, by the way. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now read this last part with me. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Basically, most of the Old Testament as we know it, he says, boils down to that. That's what he says. And then Jesus goes even further. We'll notice that in his life, as well as in his teaching, he does not harm those who disagree with him. He actually blesses them. Now, if you look in the New Testament, Luke 9, if you have your Bibles, it's going to say this. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, right, the center of their life. And he sent messengers ahead of him. And on their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, you'll remember that Jesus is in the north of Galilee. To get to Jerusalem, you either have to go over by the Jordan River or you have to go through the land of Samaria, which they did not like to do. Samaritans believed differently than the Jews. They believed in God, but they believed that the temple was not at Jerusalem. They believed it was at a different place. And so in the Jewish tradition, they had this understanding and a culture that if you were on your way to the temple and someone needed to stay with you, you opened your home to them because everybody had to do it and everybody had to do it multiple times a year, at least if you were a male 12 years and up. But the Samaritans didn't believe that and they weren't about to open their homes to people who were trying to do something they thought was wrong. Okay? So, when his disciples, James and John, see this, they say to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and burn them up? 
Now notice, this is like the last week of Jesus' life. And these disciples have been with him for three years. And this is what they think Jesus might want them to do. We are slow learners, friends, aren't we? Because when we want to burn somebody up, we just want to burn them up. Isn't that true in your life? I mean, when you get a good mat on, Jesus says, no. He rebuked them. And then Johnny says this, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. So I want you to think about this. If Jesus is the exact imprint of God, then what we do, we have to do something when there's this stark contrast, particularly with these Old Testament passages where God commands violence and genocide, quite frankly. And we have to hold that with Jesus' call to love our enemies. So, uh, just as a way to get our minds around this, the death penalty in the Old Testament, um, I'm not going to show you the scriptures that are in your notes, um, but they're all there, and you can read it for yourself. These are the things that get you killed in the Old Testament. If you sacrifice to any other god other than Yahweh, to Baal, the golden calf, I mean, all that, you're going to be put to death. Uh, you are going, and we, we say, okay, well, we might understand that. But you know what? If you're here today, and your uh, three-year-old back talked to you, or your, your, um, you know, your youth didn't really want to be here, and you told them to take out the trash they didn't, you get to kill them. <laughs> We're not going to argue the merits of that. Um, <laughs> if that child you're putting in your car seat uh, hits you because you pinch their fat little legs in the thing, I mean, I understand it. Or you curse your parents. Seriously. You're dead. They'll kill you for it. Stone you. Or, if you work on the Sabbath, all of a sudden, I see the people of Acts 2 dwindling. Right? How many people would be here today if if we had these in place? Right? If you have sex with a married person who's not your spouse, uh, adultery, both the male and female, they're going to get killed. And by the way, there's, there's lots about sex because that, that was a problem then, it's a problem now. So if you have sex with a married person, if you have sex before you're married, if you have sex and you're a guy with another guy, all of those will get you killed. What's interesting is, of all these things, these seven things that would get you killed, I know it's six, but I kind of grouped, you could put it down to five because sex is like one big category that gets you killed here, there, the otherwise. Um, which is still kind of true. Um, But here's the thing I want you to think about before next week, because we're going to talk about this directly next week, about the Bible and human sexuality. In our culture today, there's only one thing that we hold on to. I just want you to think about that, the hypocritical nature of that. We give everything else on the list a pass, but we're going to have to hold that till next week. Just think about that. It's not that it's not in there. It's in there, but so is everything else, which we happen to look past. So what about war? War in the Old Testament. In the ancient Near East, when they went to war, they understood their God as a patron God to go before them as a warrior, right? So if you look, if you remember 7th, 8th grade mythology, Ares, Mars, um, Zeus, right? You, you go. And when you finish your war, you sacrifice everyone, every animal, every child, every woman, every man, every non-combatant, and you kill them all and you offer it as a sacrifice to your God who won. And that was supposed to give you good luck for the next one. It's very superstitious. Right? Does that sound like Jesus to you? Now, this was commonplace in the 800s BC. And, and if you read Joshua, 
It's disturbing because in the region of Canaan, for example, Canaan isn't a nation, it's a region where there were some 31 city-states where you'd have a king um, or a warrior um, and they would basically build cities on hills and then they would fight it out. And every time you took a city, you were to wipe them all out. That's just the way it was. And so you'll see a reflection of that um, in Israel. You'll also find a reflection of that in Moabite communities, um, and there's documentation about that. It happened with multiple warring tribes in that area. So the Reverend Adam Hamilton in his book, Making Sense of the Bible, he says it like this, and I, and I think he's right. He says, The violent pictures of God in the Old Testament tell us more about the people who lived in the time these passages were written than they tell us about God. This was their experience. This is a document of the Jewish people at a warring tribal time in 800 B.C. Okay? But let's not fool ourselves. We can't ignore that there's violence in the New Testament too. There just is. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. And we have this um, context where the Roman Empire is the ruling power. Um, from, you can see, Great Britain to the left and Spain, all the way around. Israel's going to be right there south of Syria, all the way back around the, the North Africa. That's the Roman Empire. So one of the things that's tricky and difficult for Americans is that when Jesus is talking, most of the time he's not talking to Rome. He's talking to the people that Rome is occupying. And so it's, it's, it's a difficult lens for us. So Jesus performs a miracle for a non-Jewish military officer. We know him uh, as a centurion. A centurion simply has 50 to 100 soldiers under their leadership. And the scripture says that when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion, a military leader that's not Jewish, uh, appealed to him and said, and probably almost certainly a Roman, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed and in terrible distress. And Jesus says to him, well, I'll come and cure him. And then centurion says, no, no, no. I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word my servant will be healed. He understands who Jesus is. He says, because I'm also a man under authority. I know how this works with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. So do this, and the slave does it. And when Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. This guy gets it, and he's not even Jewish. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you according to your faith. He heals the occupying force. Now, you may think that's a really nice story, that he, he heals a servant in that hour. I guarantee you, the people who were trying to overthrow Rome did not. They wondered what in the world Jesus was doing, helping somebody on the other side. So you got to remember who Jesus is. So Paul's teaching on the Christian and the state then, and again, I know this is tricky, but you actually even have to read Paul's words through the lens of Jesus. Not just the Old Testament. All scripture through the lens of Jesus. And so this is what Paul writes to the early church in Rome in the letter to Romans. He says this to all of us today as well. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This all sounds like Jesus. Yeah, great. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Awesome. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Yes, that all matches. Bless those who persecute you. Difficult to do, but yes. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you. And that's the important part. Say that with me. As, as it depends on 
use. It depends on us. What are we supposed to do? Live peaceably with all. And then he says this, because this was a real temptation. Don't avenge yourselves. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Let every And then, by the way, this is a whole other chapter now. This is chapter 13, and that goofs us up. But it's all one argument. And then Paul says this. That's true for you personally. But let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Now, you may not think that's a great idea today. It was worse then. You may or may not know this. Nero was the ruler at the time. If you don't know Nero, Google him. It's not going to be pretty. Really, he says, be subject to the authorities, even to Nero. And this is why. Because Christians have no right to punish. It's not ours. But the state does. The government does. And we are to respect that. We're not to blindly obey it. And he chose his words carefully in the Greek there. The word is respect. It's not obey. Sometimes you get translated obey, but it's not. It's respect. So, if you think it's tough to live that out as a civilian in Edmond, try being a military leader today. It's difficult. And we have three really great friends of mine, military leaders. I hope you'll welcome them. Mike Thompson, John Bartoli, and Matt Thien. Will you welcome them as they come up? Uh, Major General Michael Thompson. He's the tall one. Um, he's the adjutant general for Oklahoma National Guard. He, he's over the entire state. Uh, he's visited and cared for troops in Germany and Romania, Azerbaijan, Kosovo, Kuwait. He's married to Debbie right over here. And we love Debbie too. Yeah, that's great. They've been married 35 years. That's awesome. And uh, he left for basic training three days after their wedding. Yeah, they have two sons. Both they also serve. Brandon is West Point graduate and is active duty with uh, Army Major at Fort Bliss. His wife Roxy is active duty uh, in Afghanistan. She's a captain there. Five weeks left. Yeah, y'all can be seated. Um, and then Jared is a, a first lieutenant, combat veteran, helicopter pilot. He's currently in medical school. Um, wonderful family. Uh, John uh, to his left has served for twenty-two years. Heather over here. There you are. I saw you over there uh, by his side. Yeah, 22 years. Uh, he's previously commanded two AWAC squadrons. He's also served as a chief air strategy in Korea and as an airport strategist at the Pentagon. Uh, John is considered a structural realist. I don't know what that means. And an expert on air defense suppression and coercive power. And then closest to me is Commander Select Matt Thien with the Navy. Matt has been a naval officer for 17 years, uh, nuclear command and control and communications, and I know Christy's here. She's not. She's coming next. Next week. Next, next, yeah, next, next week. service. Next service. Okay. And uh, we love you. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. And my hope is for them to simply um, talk to us about uh, how they understand their calling um, and their Christian faith as they lead. So, General. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Tough act to follow, Pastor Mark, up here, and the lights are very bright. <laughs> um, I'll be quick because I want to share my time with my colleagues, but uh, when we talk about faith and talk about military service, and you wonder how uh, a person can be a member of the military because at his heart, regardless of what you think about the military, at his heart, uh, the, the military is inherently violent, and you have to be violent because we need a capable military to um, deter our enemies or those who would do us harm. And we can't do that with a bunch of 
people who are nonviolent. You have to practice the skill. You have to be good at the skill. And you have to call when you call upon going and and inflict violence on others to uh, promote our ways in across the world. But the question I would have, or thought that I would have related to that, is um, how do you do that as a Christian? And I think the way that you do that is you simply have compassion. Uh, before you're a soldier, you're a Christian. Um, before you're a sailor, you're a Christian. Before you're in a Marine, you're a Christian. And you have that heart for God, and you have that heart for, for belief that you'll go out and you'll have compassion when you have to go out and do these things on behalf of your country. Uh, real quick, because I don't want to take everyone's time up. When I think about compassion, and my wife and I have had discussion about a gift. Sometimes when you give a gift and you're expecting something in return, gratitude or praise or someone to put something on Facebook, it's really not a gift mm -hmm. because that's an exchange because you're waiting on something. Same thing with compassion. If you give compassion in the military, in some of these situations we put our military in these days, there's no real reasonable belief that you're going to get compassion in return because some of these people that we are engaged with around the world are pretty violent. So if you give compassion, you have to give it with the fact knowingly that you may not get it in return, but still give it. Um, George H.W. Bush in 1990 when Iraq invaded Kuwait and George Bush famously said, this will not stand. And we gathered this large assembly and allies and we pushed Saddam and his men back into Iraq. But there was a point there on the highway in Kuwait where we could have just destroyed a lot of people, killed a lot of people, and George H.W. had compassion. And regardless of what you think about whether we should have kept going or not, he showed compassion as a man, as a Christian, and we're better off for it. And I'll pass the mic. Thank you, sir. Um, you know, I, I really wish you all could know my airmen. Uh, I have about a thousand of them right now scattered uh, across three states. Um, because I, I think as the military has gotten smaller and we've closed bases, I, I really worry about the, the lack of uh, connection and, and your ability to know, um, frankly, the servicemen that, that represent you and protect you. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think a lot of us are, are pretty much cut from the same cloth, and there, there are much more, for as different as we all are, uh, the commonalities are, are very powerful. Uh, I'm, I'm very comfortable saying that most of us recognize that Jesus is the ideal, and we live our lives to try to be as close to him as possible. Um, you know, the most, uh, the most loving, um, most brilliant, most intelligent man that's ever walked the earth. Uh, I think we also realize that inherently uh, we live in an imperfect world, and in that imperfect world there are, it's full of imperfect people, some of whom are incredibly dangerous. And... Uh, this is where I think it really, the two things that really resonate with the average, uh, the average uh, American warrior are uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and physical safety and security is something that's extremely, uh, it, it resonates with me. You need physical security because if you look across the world, wherever you don't have physical security and safety, um, you also don't have a developed economy. You don't have a functioning educational system, you have disease, you have poverty, uh, and you have a, a lack of uh, freedom of expression and, uh, and freedom of religion. And I think in the back of the average serviceman's mind, we think that if we fail to provide security and physical safety for our people, um, there is a lot of good that isn't going to get done. So the transcendence piece at the top, 
maximizing our full potential if we are not safe, if we can't feed ourselves, if we can't shelter ourselves. Um, a lot of the greatness that we do in this church may or may not happen. No one is going to put the fourth coat of paint on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel while he or she is getting shot at. Um, and that's just kind of a hard to swallow pill that, that I think we, we've all just, in my culture, agreed to take. So implicit there is the idea that uh, while war is absolutely terrible um, and we don't ever want to do it, there are some things that are more terrible. And the, the two best examples I can give you are uh, what the general mentioned, uh, you know, the, the first Gulf War and the Euro liberation of Europe after World War II, or during World War II, uh, rather. Universally considered terrible wars fought for the right reasons, which were to stop genocide and reverse naked acts of aggression and conquest. So let's get to the tension. Um, you know, we, we hear that uh, physicians take an oath to first do no harm. I think the American warrior's uh, analog to that is um, deter if you can, but if you must fight, win, and do absolutely as little harm as possible. And we back that up with our rules. Um, we have the law of, of armed conflict that tells us, you know, we do not indiscriminately kill and destroy. In our culture, I don't, I, you know, war criminal is one of the most abhorrent terms we have. Um, I think the only things that are mentioned in the same breath are a traitor and, and maybe coward. Um, but no one, no one wants to have uh, uh, his or her honor impugned by being called a war criminal. Uh, so we do not act indiscriminately. Um, to guide us in these periods of great uncertainty and unbelievable uh, stress, quite honestly, we follow a couple principles. I just want you to understand what goes into the thought process of, of military leaders when we're doing what we we're training to do what we hope we never actually have to do. And those are necessity and proportionality. We only want to strike what must be struck. And we're only going to strike those things with the minimum amount of force necessary to accomplish our objective and move on. It is not indiscriminate, and it is not deemed necessary. Keep in mind, these are decisions made by imperfect people with imperfect information in very imperfect times. Um, but I will tell you that we try our best. Amen. If you knew my airmen, you'd see about a 1,000 people that think very deeply about these things, go to school, get master's degrees studying them, um, talk about them in our off hours. Um, and uh, whenever you have a chance to talk to an airman or a soldier or a Marine or a Coastie, I'm leaving someone out, sailor, Army, all those military people. Um, <laughs> he He's right fire. here. <laughs> Just uh, take advantage of it. Talk to them, figure out what makes them tick, because uh, unfortunately in today's day and age, I think other things and people get to speak for us much more loudly than, they wish, than we wish they did. Uh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks, John. Good morning. Wow, there it is. <laughs> it's my first time on stage using a microphone, so. <laughs> uh, my name is Matt Thien. Um, I've been a naval officer for 17 years now. Uh, Christy, uh, most of you know her, has been, my, been by my side through the entire time. Um, so I consider her my, my right-hand woman for sure through all of this. Um, this career choice has helped shape me who I am, but it absolutely has not defined who I am. Um, here's some context. Uh, over the past 17 years, uh, we've served 
at 12 different duty locations. Christy and I have set up and tore down 10 different homes. Uh, I've spent more than 3,000 hours airborne over various parts of the world in military aircraft. Uh, My longest consecutive deployment, hey, over there, um, was seven months on an aircraft carrier uh, supporting Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2010. Um, I've also spent some time underway on various ships and submarines. Uh, I've seen some stuff, some stuff that I'm very proud of, and honestly, some stuff that breaks my heart. My primary job in the Navy uh, over, over the last 17 or so years has, has been about deterrence, specifically strategic nuclear deterrence. Uh, that is simply defined as the process of discouraging an action or event uh, through instilling doubt or fear of the consequences. Yes, my job is to, if called upon, transmit a message that would direct the launch of nuclear weapons, changing the course of history forever. All in a matter of minutes. It's violence on the biggest scale, the most destructive, and honestly, it's unfathomable. The only reason I even think about it is because it's my job. Good news for all of us, though, so far, so good. (laughs) Deterrence is working. Praise God for that. And uh, we have a saying, we have a patch around us that says, Ben Nuke today, you're welcome. <clears throat> um, I'm a creative type. I like to put some, some, some self-application into this. Um, so as you guys know, violence is nothing new. Um, since the first humans inhabited the planet, there's, there's been violence. And you guys in your own mind can go through those wars and those times. I don't need to list them. You know, they start very early in the Bible, and they go all the way up until um, the war on Afghanistan. There's been conflict. There's always been wars waged in the, in the lives of God's people. Uh, we don't even need to look back that far um, to see that the human soul at its core is evil without the redemption power of Jesus Christ. And looking through that lens, um, just watch the local news or browse the Internet for five seconds, and you'll see. We aren't here for a peaceful life. It's not guaranteed. But we're here to establish peace in this life. If America's military doesn't stand trained and ready to defend her against all enemies, foreign and domestic, who will? If God's people, us, don't stand tried and true and ready for God's truth, who will? And if, if men don't stand ready to defend their family in the time of need, then who will? There's no one exempt from the attacks of the enemy. Uh, whether physical, spiritual, emotional, okay? When deterrence fails, the message to launch the nuclear weapons may need to happen, okay? And, And America's military stands ready to do that if called upon. But I will tell you, in every planning session, in every training mission, what is the fallout? What is the least amount of people we can harm if we are called to do this? So know that, that that is that compassion that the general was talking about. It goes into every planning mission and every training mission. Um, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stay right there.
So you have something to talk about at lunch today. Uh, we would not want them to leave or, or us to leave with, without praying for you all and praying for ourselves. And so uh, I want us to actually pray the words of scriptures from Romans 12, this same section, if you read it with me. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And all of God's people say, amen. Y'all may be seated. Thanks so much for coming up. I appreciate you. So, how, how do you make this make sense in your own home? Um, we, we start with ourselves. So today I want to invite you, uh, before you go to sleep tonight, to make a list of people that you don't really care for. I mean, really, just be honest with yourself. And not just people that, you know, well, I don't like that guy that I used to know five years ago. Somebody that you're probably going to see at work tomorrow. Uh, except for my own staff, don't do that. Um, but, no, you can do that too. Uh, but anyway, um, write them down. Write down the names. And then each morning this week, I want you to pray for them by name. Really pray for them, that God would bless them, help them, help your relationship with them. And then um, just write down what happens. See what God does with that. You might be surprised. Will you pray with me? Father God, like the Israelites, we become what we worship. They worshiped a golden calf and ran wild like livestock. When we serve money, we become calculating machines rather than compassionate children of yours. Or when we worship our careers, we become slaves to them rather than free children of yours. Focus again on Jesus and your new commandment through him to love one another. And let's share in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.